0: Haven't been with us in a couple weeks. Uh, we are in Matthew chapter four. We are walking through the temptations of Jesus Christ, and uh, what we're doing is we're seeing uh, how Jesus was tempted and and how he can relate to us or sympathize with us. What the writer of Hebrews tells us in our weaknesses, he went through every temptation, yet he overcame because uh, we can't. We're weak. Uh, we fall to temptations daily. Uh, Uh, moment by moment at times. And so a couple weeks ago we started just building context, understanding the temptations, understanding what led up to the temptations, what they represent, why Jesus was tempted. And last week we looked at the very first temptation. It begins in verse 3 of chapter 4 and we see that the devil came to Jesus and first began uh, stirring up doubt, uh, asking questions uh, concerning the word of God and God's purpose for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ's identity as the Son of God, And it's the same attack that Satan's going to bring in our life: is to make us doubt uh, God's word, uh, to make us question it, to make us uh, wonder is it relevant? Is it really something I need to apply to my life? To make us question God's purpose for our life and what God is doing in our life and where he is taking us and, and at times to, to make us even think that we're in control of it. And finally, to make us question our, our identity, not just as children of God, but as individuals, as people made in the image of God. You look in the world today and you look at teenagers and even adults and how Satan is attacking people and their identity and, and how, who they feel they are, who they feel they should be, or what they think they should be doing, or how they think they should look. Satan is, is after you. He's after me. He's after all of us. He's after us, whether we are children of God or not, uh, because he wants to kill you. He wants to steal your life, your joy, your peace, ultimately he wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy not just you, he wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your kids. He wants to destroy your future family, destroy your reputation. He has an agenda. And so we're walking through these temptations to see how he brings these temptations into our own life and and how we can uh, combat them or overcome them. So if you have your scripture with you, uh, we're going to begin in verse 5 this morning in chapter 4 of Matthew. It says, Then the devil took him, him being Jesus, to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. If you weren't here last week, the devil is also titled Satan. He is the adversary. He's the false accuser. And with the second temptation, we see that the image we're given is the devil took him, took Jesus... Uh, to the holy city. The holy city would be Jerusalem to the Jewish people. It would be the place where it is believed that the, the presence of God dwelled. It was the metropolis of worship. People would gather in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and come into the presence of God and hear the word of God and, and then go out into the world and live it. Well, Satan takes Jesus And he puts him at the pinnacle, which is the very top of the temple. So you're able to overlook all of Jerusalem, which is the holy city. The Jews believe it to be the holiest of all cities on the face of the earth. And they're about 180 feet above ground, looking over all of what would be the representation of God's people. And as he takes him there, he brings his favorite two-letter word, and that is, if. If you are the Son of God. He said it in the first temptation, he says it in the second, and he'll say it in the third. It's a a word that is meant to come into our life and make us doubt. It's it's to taunt what God has already spoken into your heart, what God has already revealed to you. It's to make you question, can I really believe this? Can I really place my faith in this? We also need to keep in mind that Satan did not come and approach Jesus when Jesus uh, was full uh, God, but when he was revealing himself as human. He had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. He appeared to be at his weakest moment in his human state. And so he comes and attacks God at that moment. And he says, if, if you're the son of God. Last week we dealt with, the word of God and the authority of God and being trusting, so we're not going to really spend much time on that, but that is an attack that Satan is bringing once again if you are the son of God. is something God has told him once he came out of the waters of baptism. This is my beloved son. This particular temptation now deals with doubting the love of God, doubting the faithfulness of God, and doubting the word of God. See, Satan wants you to doubt God's faithfulness in your life. He wants you to doubt whether you, you are loved by God and whether God could truly love you, knowing your past and knowing your history. Before we jump into this, there's two things I want us to understand in a biblical arena. It's the word temptation and the word test. In the Bible, they they play in the same arena or play in the same place, but they have two different meanings altogether. Temptation is something God will never do to you. He will never bring a temptation into your life. That temptations lead to evil and God is not evil. The book of James tells us that. But temptations are something that God will allow to come into your life. The goal of a temptation is to entice you, to pull you away from doing something obedient to God and showing the love of God to other people. A test, on the other hand, is something that God does bring into your life. See, God will bring a test into our life in in order to prove or approve our faithfulness and our truthfulness and our character according to the Word of God. The root of a temptation is to come and to make us doubt those things. Is God truthful? Is God faithful? Is God someone I can rely upon? Is God someone I can love? And even though we may go through temptations physically and spiritually, The goal of the temptation is to make it a direct attack on God. We may have to endure them, but the attack is on God. See, Satan cannot approach God in his full power and holiness, but he can take you on. He can take me on. He can make us fall. He can make us mock God by the way we live our life and decisions we make. But the Bible reveals that the only way Satan can do this is if God gives him permission. See, you look in the book of Job and Satan had to go to God and ask for permission to bring the temptations to test Job's character. And it was there that God granted that permission. So the temptations that come in our life are when God has opened the door and given Satan permission, given the demons permission in order to test our, our faithfulness to the word of God, in order to test our obedience to God, in order to test our love for God. That's why Paul writes, he, will, he being God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. So God trusts us a lot, doesn't he? Temptations are something that allow us to build our character and our faithfulness and, and, and allow us to grow in the faith. But we also see it within the temptations, and it's important to, to make mention again, is the devil has no power to make you sin. He has no power whatsoever to make you sin. He tempts you, and then we are in me, and we fall into it. It is our free gift of free will that allows us to either sin or not sin. The simplest definition of sin, which is the goal of temptations, is to obey the devil. So when we sin, we are making a choice to either obey God or to obey the devil. And when we fall into those sins, we reveal that we are obeying the devil, now, with the first temptation, Satan comes and he says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down for his written. He will give his angels concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And that just doesn't seem fair to me. It does not seem fair that Satan, our enemy, the one who's out to, to kill us and destroy us, knows Scripture. But if you look at it closely enough and you actually look into what Satan is saying and what he is not saying, you understand that he may know Scripture, but he does not understand Scripture. And he begins to bend it and use it in ways that he can. What he's trying to get to happen here is for Jesus to doubt the faithfulness of God. How can you trust a God who's not faithful to his own word? How can you you trust a God who's not trustworthy? If you turn with me to the book of Psalms, chapter 91, this is where Satan brings this scripture. In Psalm 91, verse 11 through 12, it says, for he, speaking of God, will give his angels angels orders concerning you. That's what we just read in Matthew. But the end of verse 11 says to protect you in all your ways. Satan omitted that. He did not say that part. And there's a reason for that. Verse 12 goes on, They will support you with their hands so that they will not strike your foot against the stone. The phrase in which Satan omits there in Psalm 91 at the end of verse 11 is an important passage within the context of this verse. In Psalm 91, it's speaking of God's faithfulness, how God will protect His children, how God will provide for His children, and He will support us. The key to the passage which Satan omits is that God will be faithful to His children who are faithful to Him. That God will hold you up. He will protect you. He will guard you. He will be with you when you are in the will of the Lord. When you are living in obedience to God, when you find the Lord as your refuge, when you dwell in His presence, we do that today by dwelling in the Word of God and, and His people. And so when Satan brought this temptation, omitting that, he's omitting it because he knows if Jesus falls us, he cannot live out this truth of the Word of God because he's not dwelling in the will of God. He's not being obedient to that. See, Satan, he likes to misquote Scripture, and he's doing it all across this nation where there's things that sound biblical and even times that people are using Scripture for their own benefit. We talked about a few of those things last week in phrases that sound biblical but really aren't. But Satan ups, up, ups his game. Many of you probably have heard this verse. For I know the plans I have for you, the Lord declares. Plans for well-being, not for disaster, to give you a hope and a future. It comes out of Jeremiah 29.11. In the, in the Christian Standard Bible, it says well-being. In some other translations, it has welfare or prosperity. And so some people take that verse in, in Jeremiah 29, and say, look, this is why we know God wants us to have money. He wants us to be rich because God has plans for our welfare, for our prosperity, for our success. But that's not what the passage is saying in the context. In the context of Jeremiah 29, God is speaking to his people, the children of Israel, who are in bondage. This is a point in Jeremiah where it's, it's changing the tone of the book. Where Jeremiah is the wailing prophet, now God is speaking a message of hope. That even though you're in the midst of this captivity, even though you're in the midst of persecution, even though you're in a land that is not the land I promised you, because of the sin you have done, you put yourself in this situation. I called out to you, I cried to you, and you continue to rebel, you continue to go against my ways. And in the midst of this difficulty, I still have a plan for you and it is for a well-being. That word in the Hebrew does not mean that God's plan for Israel is that they would be wealthy and they would have gold upon gold. It means that he, is, he has plans for their physical well-being, their physical health, and all things that matter with their physical health. That, that, that includes food. That includes the means to be able to buy stuff. Now, what we can take from that passage and what we compare to the rest of Scripture, is God does have a plan for us. He does have a purpose for our life. But it's not for us to be tied to this world with the hopes and dreams of this world, but to be in sight of the next. Another passage that many take out of context and as we celebrate Father's Day, I've heard this used many times, comes out of Proverbs chapter 22. It says, train up a child in the way that he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I've heard parents use this passage saying, this is why I make my kids go to church. This is why I make my my kids go to youth group. This is why we're here today, because I'm training up a child in the way he or she should go. But the context of the passage is upon the parent. To train your child in the ways of the Lord doesn't mean you just take them to church. It is that the mom and dad or parental figure in that child's life would be the primary trainer. They would be the one that is teaching the spiritual truths of God into their life and into their heart. It isn't to say, Here, here's, my, here's my student, Jason. I can't do anything with him. You do it. It isn't to take them to children's church and say, I, I don't know what to do. You, you fix them. In my time in youth ministry, my time in children's ministry, I had so many parents that were so baffled. Like, I don't know what's wrong with them. So you take them for an hour or two a week and you fix it. The problem was not the kid. It was the parent. The parent was preaching one thing in their life, telling them they should be doing this in their life, and the parent was doing the exact opposite. There was no training in the home. Another thing about this is people hang on to this and like this is an an eternal truth, that if I take my kid to church, if I teach them the Word of God, if I read to them the Word of God, if I play The Wind or Caleb all the time and and they're hearing music, Christian music all the time, then they're going to be a godly person when they grow up. The thing about Proverbs, it's a book of wisdom. And so in the book of wisdom of Proverbs, there are eternal truths and there are general truths. And we need to understand the two of them. An eternal truth in Proverbs, like will be chapter 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll make your path straight. That's an eternal truth. We can find that throughout the course of the Bible. But this particular passage is what well is known as a general truth, meaning that when we apply the principle it will generally come to fruition that the child will not depart from the ways of the Lord. But we can see this is not an eternal truth. God is the father of the people of Israel. Look into the Old Testament. You have God physically training his children, physically discipling and disciplining his children, physically telling them the word of God. And what did the children of Israel do? Some of them got it. Some of them grew up and and did not depart from it but as a whole, what did they do? They rebelled. See, there's not a guarantee that, that I train Ethan or Abby, that I teach them the Word of God and read them the Word of God and love on them in the Word of God. It's not a guarantee that when they get older, they're going to be godly people. I pray for it. I, I, it breaks my heart if they're not. But I have to understand, just as I have free will, so do my kids. And eventually they're going to have to come to a point where this is either mommy and daddy's thing or this is their thing. And so as a parent, as a father, I want to give my kids the very best opportunities to know God and know God's love for them. So that's why I teach them the word of God. That's why I bring them to church. That's why uh, we, we sing Christian songs and we have Christian radio, And that's why we have these conversations because I want them to have the very best opportunity. And I think to, to not do that is to be negligent. You're setting your kids up for disaster. Another passage that is taken off and out of context comes out of Romans and usually used by Christian protesters. I'm not, against standing up against godly values, but you should do it in a godly way. And I've seen protesters stand outside Starbucks and Planned Parenthood and Target and whatever thing that just ticks them off that week, saying, for the wages of sin is death. Just march around. That's the only thing they have. And while that's a true statement, it's taking it completely out of context because what's the rest of the verse? But, what? The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And they're all doom and gloom See, the Word of God is not meant for us to be used as an arsenal so we can prove ourselves right and other people wrong. The Word of God is meant to move us into godliness. It's to move us to this place where we are more godly than we were before, to take on the image of Christ. And when we use the Word of God out of context, whether it's teaching or just to prove our point, we're not acting godly, we're acting like Satan. That's exactly what Satan did in his temptation. Paul wrote to Timothy and gave him this instruction. He says, now the goal of our instruction, the goal of teaching the Word of God is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Another thing I want us to see back here in Matthew in chapter 4 is even though Satan knows the Word of God, even though he is in the holy city, even though he's on top of the temple, He only knows of it. There's a huge difference in knowing of God's word and knowing of God and knowing God's word and God. One has power, one does not. The knowing of and the knowing. Satan knew of God. He knew of Jesus. He knew of God's holiness. He knew of God's uh, desire to be worshiped and glorified. He knew the angels did that because God was worthy of it. He knew of it, but He didn't know it. The Bible tells us that we are not to be hearers, only hearers of the Word, deceiving ourselves, but we are to be doers. And so there's a huge difference in knowing of and knowing. When we know of something, we can rattle off details. It's kind of like baseball stats. We can rattle off stuff, and it sounds good, it sounds biblical, it may even look biblical, but we only know of it. When you know something, it changes you. See, I know of celebrities. I can rattle off some of the most nonsense stuff concerning celebrities. I know of them, but I don't know them. But I know my wife. It changes me. It it impacts me. It, It changes how I look at things. The devil knows of the power of God. He knows of the faithfulness of God. He knows of the love of God. He's seen it played throughout eternity, but he does not know it personally. Perhaps you're here this morning you know of stuff concerning church. You know of stuff concerning the Bible. But My question is, do you really know God and are you really known by Him? When we know of something, it's only information. But when we know it, it changes us. The Bible tells us back in this temptation, Satan brings out Scripture. And how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 7. It says, Jesus told him, it's also written, do not test the Lord your God. I want you to notice, Jesus doesn't argue with him. He doesn't try to, whoa, wait, wait Satan, let me, let me put that one part in the verse that you left out. He doesn't try to clarify it. He doesn't have a little Bible drill with Satan at this moment in time. What he does is he takes the passage that Satan uses, and he puts it back into the context in which it should be placed in. Jesus' statement is, do not put your Lord your God. To the test. It's a verse that comes out of the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament where, where it speaks about an event that comes out of the book of Exodus. So what happened is the children of Israel, you're probably familiar with this, God sends Moses in as his instrument of righteousness to bring the children of Israel out of slavery. They use the plagues, they use the Passover, they cross the Red Sea. They have this incredible worship service. On the other side of the Red Sea is the first worship, worship service as freed people. And as they're over there, you would think now God's people are ready for the promised land. Now they're ready to live out this promise that God gave Abraham back in Genesis. But if you're familiar with the story, what happens? Sure is thirsty on this side of the river. Mm. Man, we should have stayed in Egypt. So much better. So much better. We had water to drink. What did God do? Water from a rock. Did they praise him? Well, they were thankful. But the next passage you read about, man, I'm sure I'm hungry on this side of the river. There's nothing to eat here. Well, You brought us here to die. We should have stayed in Egypt. It was so much better. We had food. We had water. We weren't walking around all the time. What did God do? Manna from heaven. Think that would change their spirit? Man. God is good, God provided, God protected. You know what the very next story is? Sure, I'm thirsty again. Even though God had done all these things, the people kept complaining. And it said that they grumbled and complained against Moses. Why? Because Moses was, was the instrument God was using, they were, they were mad that God wasn't doing what they thought God should be doing, and instead of remembering the blessings and the provisions and the protections and how God had brought them to this place, and God, this is what blows me away. God was physically manifesting Himself at this moment in time. He was a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I mean, it was, he was, it was evident He was there, and yet they were still grumbling and complaining that God saved them, He delivered them so He would kill them in the, in the desert. And so Jesus, he takes from this situation as, as Satan has is, is brought him up to this place and says, you know, toss yourself out. See if God loves you. See if God will protect you. See if God will provide for you. See if you can trust God. He takes that passage about throwing himself down. The angels will pick him up. And Jesus takes the passage and puts it in the context and then it puts it in the context of his situation. That I don't have to do that because I know God will protect me. I know God will provide for me. I know God loves me. I know God trusts me. So I don't need to test God. I don't need to attack God's character. I don't need to attack God's word, his holiness. I don't need to attack who God is because he's already shown that to me. But see, isn't that where we are? Isn't that exactly what we do? So when we test the word of God, we are attacking the holiness and character of God. So Jesus says you don't put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus had no doubts that his father loved him. That's exactly what God wants for you and me, to have no doubts that God loves us. He has his best for us. We just have to trust him instead of test him. The Bible reveals very clearly how much God loves you. For God so loved the world. For God so loved you. He so loved me that he gave his only son. There was was no other option. There wasn't plan B. God was all in for you and for me that we could be forgiven just by placing our faith in him. The book of Romans tells us in Romans chapter 8. I love this passage. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, what does it say? Who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also, how will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Who's God's elect? That's you and me by our faith in Jesus Christ. Who can bring an accusation against us? Who can condemn us? It is God who justifies. Who can condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, he has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God, and what is he doing? He's interceding for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep, to be slaughtered, but no, verse 37, in all these things, no matter what we go through, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all created things will be able to separate us from what? The love of God that is in Christ. Jesus, our Lord. God loves you. He loves you. He can do nothing but love you. The Bible says God is love. And you know what His love is directed towards? You. Jesus didn't have to doubt that. He knew it. He had experienced it. He'd heard it. He heard God proclaim it. Every time we gather on Sunday morning, this is what God is proclaiming. I love you. I'm for you. I know this faith thing is hard, but just trust me. And then Satan creeps in and says, well, if you do that. Going back to the passage, it just seems like we're destined to fail. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He, he takes scripture and he corrupts it and twists it so it sounds right but it's not exactly right what are we to do well Jesus promises disciples in John 16 that in this world you're going to have troubles but what was the promise I've overcome them I've overcome them which means that the battles we face and the defeats we have in our life and our relationship with God we are already victorious we just need to trust in Jesus. We need to trust in God's Word. And Paul was led by the Spirit to give us some very important instructions. If you want to turn to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, you've probably heard this passage numerous times. You may have even study it, read it. You may even have it on your wall at home somewhere. In Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 12, This is what we've been talking about: these temptations. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. That's what we're up against. And Paul says, he goes on to write in verse 13, for this reason, because this is what we're up against, because Satan is after you. He wants wants to destroy your life. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist the evil day and have prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like an armor on your chest, and feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. Stay alert with all perseverance and intercession with all the saints." Paul's led by the Spirit of God to give us the instructions that you better be ready because Satan's coming after you. You are marked as a child of God. You have been saved. You are an imitator of Jesus Christ. And since Satan cannot not get Jesus to fall, you know what he wants with your life? He wants you to fall. And the only way to withstand the attacks and the temptations that want to pull us away from the love of the Father is to be in the Word of God to be fully clothed in the armor of God, to fully trust God, to fully have it in, in our minds and our hearts, not just on our phones or our tablets or, or in front of us reading, but to have it instilled in us, to have it deposited. We as God's people need to know the word of God better than our enemy. We need to memorize it. So when Satan comes, we can quote truth. That's our, our, our battle, is to quote truth. Truth, that's what we use. It also is a calling that you need to be studying the Word of God personally, but also with other people. Is it necessary for your salvation? No. It's probably necessary for your sanity, your spirituality. You need to be with other people in small groups in the Word of God, allowing God to speak truth into your life. And make sure it's biblical truth. I just got to tell you, there are a lot of pastors out there that are preaching today and they're not even opening their Bible. And that should be a big red flag. Biblical truth. That is the only thing that is going to save you, that is the only thing that is going to protect you. Because Satan's coming. The Bible tells us that Jesus went through all these temptations so that he can relate to us. He can sympathize with us. He he knows the struggles we go through. He knows the things we fall to. He's not a God that is is a robot that is just, well, I I don't know what's wrong with him. He knows how difficult it is. But Jesus overcame. The truth of the battle that we all face, whether we're saved or not, is that we either have one who stands for us or we're standing alone. See, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, in Him alone, then you're all alone on this battle. And Satan is just going to have his way with you. But by your faith in Jesus Christ, you know you've already overcome because He has overcome. You know you've already been given the victory. We may stumble, we may fall at times, but I know I'm saved past, present, future. Not because anything I brought to the King... But simply because the king loved me. Do you have Jesus today? We can talk about the devil's schemes. I heard earlier somebody was having fun on their motorbike. You heard it, I know. you think Satan wants you to hear the word of God? Do you think Satan wants you to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ today? Where do you stand? The Bible says that there's no one, to, no way to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And today God has drawn you to this place not only to reveal the battle that we all face in doubting God's love and faithfulness, but also drawn you to this place if you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, that this be your day of salvation. The Bible says, I have to first admit that I'm a sinner. I fall short of the glory of God, but the free gift free gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ. We all fall short. We all mess up. We all do things we don't want to. That's what the Bible calls sin. The Bible says, when I understand that I'm a sinner, I then believe that and understand that I can't do anything to solve that sin problem. That I can't be good enough. I can't go to church enough. I can't read the Bible enough. I can't be in enough Bible studies. It is only by my faith in Jesus Christ alone. Believing that he lived a perfect life. He died for my sins and he rose again and I could be completely forgiven. The Bible says when I believe it, I need to confess it. I need to make it known. Listen here, this doesn't mean that you got to get your life all together before this happens. This doesn't mean that you got to get it all right after it happens. It simply means you understand how much God loves you and you're going to do your very best to respond to that love by being obedient to the word of God. You're going to fall. But if you're here this morning and you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, I'm going to stand down here. I'm going to ask Jackson to come up and lead us. Let the day be your day of salvation. I want to lead you into prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, I, I pray for these that are here this morning and have yet to accept you. For I pray that you just you open their eyes, you, you soften their hearts, that you reveal that they need to come down, they need to make it known that they want you in their lives. Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your truth. Father, forgive us those times we doubt it. Forgive those times where we don't, we don't trust you. When we make you so small and put you on our level. Forgive us those times where we doubt you love us. When we go through difficult times, when we wonder where you are or why you're letting this happen, Lord, forgive us when we doubt your love for us when your word clearly says how much you love us. Father, as your people let us come to a place where we realize the temptations we continue to fall in that we can get out of those that we can we can just hand those over to you and we can live in the victory you've given us. I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that Jesus has overcome. It's become this time of invitation, this time to respond to what you've put in front of us, this time that your Spirit has revealed what is going on in our life. Lord, let us be obedient. Let us show by how we respond right now that we are going to obey you and not the devil. Thank you for this day. Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for loving us. Please forgive me if I have failed you in any way, if I have gotten in your way. And forgive us if we have allowed anything to take us from being completely focused on you. We love you, Lord. Praise your Son's name. Stand as we sing.